Hi there, I'm Janice Forsyth. A very warm welcome to our writing panel. You guys are very clever. Uh, you know that this is going to be a, an astonishing array of talent that you're about to, to see and be able to ask questions of. Uh, this is part of the BAFTA Scotland session supported by Screen Scotland, a virtual series to celebrate some of the nominees and nominated programmes from this year's British Academy Scotland Awards. A wee bit of housekeeping, even though we're all in our different houses still important. Uh, these virtual events are part of BAFTA's learning work to share expertise from film, games and television with audiences far and wide. <laughs> Check out BAFTA.org and BAFTA's social channels for more activities and news. And you can join the conversation, which is always lovely if you do that, on social using the hashtag Scotland Sessions. And for this session, you can ask questions and we'd love to hear from you. We'll try and get through as many of your questions as possible towards the end of this session. Um, and I'll put them uh, to the panel at that point. So please send them in. And I'm sure you have great questions for our guys. Send them in via the Q&A function on Zoom. Um, closed captioning is available now, which you can turn on at the bottom of your screen. Well done if you're remembering uh, all of that. And actually, just quickly, uh, great news today, obviously, about an imminent vaccine. So fingers crossed soon as well as doing, there will always be virtual events. We'll all be able to get together, maybe in an actual cinema with you, the audience, and our talent in person. And we're going to have a drink and stuff like that. So finally, most importantly, ladies and gentlemen, you can give them a virtual cheer or just do clapping in your own house. It's cool. Uh, please welcome our brilliant guest today, Andrea Gibb, uh, writer of Elizabeth is Missing, Neil Forsyth, Guilt, and Paul Lafferty. Sorry we missed you. There's Andrea. There's Neil. There's Paul. Hi, everybody. <laughs> Brilliant to have you here. I don't know why I've seemed surprised, but the technology works, which is great. And we've got a lot of people watching. Uh, I, can, I can't see them, but I can see that there are many, many uh, people who've tuned in, and I'm not surprised about that. So um, let's just kick things off. Uh, let me start with you, Andrea. Just a, a very basic question about being nominated for Elizabeth is missing. How does it feel to be nominated? We know that the writers clearly, they're the most important part of any film or television show jigsaw. It, it wouldn't exist without you guys. It can be a long, slow, arduous process. So is this a bit of the icing on the cake to have a nomination like this? Well, it absolutely is. I mean, I'm, I'm absolutely chuffed about this and to be in this company as well is just incredible. Um, I, I think it's always, BAFTA Scotland is always particularly special because it's Scotland and because your peers, your Scottish peers are nominating you. And I think I think that means it means a great deal. And I think I was last nominated for this in 2004. Wow. So that just goes to show how long I've been trucking away. So I'm very, very, yeah, I'm really proud. Oh, amazing. And Neil Forsyth, you've had a, a busy old time, uh, a guilt, a, a, a great big success of a series. And we know there's another one in the offing, but we're going to just keep focused on on uh, the one that you're nominated for. Um, how's it been for you? It's been a bit of a, a journey. And again, is this a, is this a nice outcome for you? Oh, yeah, it's absolutely fantastic. You know, it's um, been nominated alongside Paul and Andrea and, and also all the brilliant Scottish shows that the writers haven't been nominated. It's uh, it's a really, really, really chuffed, and it's um, and, you know I think as as the writer, it's, it's lovely when the show gets the awards, and it's lovely to see everyone else involved getting awards, and 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 you know, but to, to get the writing awards uh, nomination as well, it just it, it's I, I really very, very pleased. Yeah, 
and Paul Lafferty, always good to see you as well. Um, and it's an interesting sort of production setup you have because you're working with long-term collaborators, aren't you? Obviously with uh, director Ken Loach and producer Rebecca O'Brien. Do you feel it is, is, is a really sort of collegiate team effort when it comes to, oh, the big scary thing of actually producing feature films, which you guys do on a regular basis? Um, I feel very, 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 very lucky, Janice, uh, and, uh, and um, yeah, I feel very, they're, they're long-term friends now, too, so if you can work with friends who are, who are talented and are demanding and generous, you really feel you've won the lottery, you feel I've won the lottery a long time ago, so I never take it for granted, and the beautiful thing about making film and, uh, and telling stories is that you depend on the talent of so many people, and if it works well, it's absolute paradise, um, you, I really, really miss, you know, meeting up and talking and, and discussing not only not only projects, but, you know, just sharing life with these people. So um, I feel very fortunate and I'm, and I'm sure Neil and Janice have gone, we've gone through the same process. If you work with people you got on well with, you know, it's, 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 it's a real joy and a real privilege. Yeah. So, Andrea, let's let's talk about Elizabeth is Missing, because this is an adaptation from a novel. Can you sort of just open the door a wee bit into, into the process, the beginnings of that and, and how it came about and how you came to adapt it? Well, it took four years from start to finish. Yeah. Um, and Claire Armspot, who is um, head of drama development at STV, who is one of the best script, script executives I have ever worked with, she found the novel when it was still in manuscript form. It got said to her, she found it, she, she read it. So she was the one who thought this would make something really amazing. So it's, it's kind of down to her, she found it first. And then it got published and all of a sudden it was a bestseller um, because, I don't know, it, it went on Richard and Judy, you know that thing that happens with books and suddenly it was just like, it was a bestseller. And Emma who wrote it, Emma Healy who wrote it, she was like 25, something like that, her first book. But the amazing thing about it was that she based it on her relationship with her granny. So everything that is in the book is so true and so authentic because she had first-hand experience of dementia. And my dad had dementia. And when I, when Claire sent the manuscript to me, I read it and I just felt an instant um, emotional connection with the material because my dad had it. I was his carer. So I sort of understood what, I understood it from, from Maud's point of view, but I also felt I understood it from Helen's point of view, who's the carer in the film. So I think I was very emotionally invested right from the outset. And BBC commissioned, Sarah Brown had come on by that point, who's, who's creative director at STV. And the three of us became this really tight little team. And BBC, BBC commissioned it. We went in, we pitched, and they said, yeah, go ahead write it but they wanted it to be three hours so I have to say I banged my head off it for three well three years nearly two and a half three years and I I could not make the three hours work because in television three hours you need a hook I mean Neil is gonna obviously talk about how you know how how important that is when you're doing episodes I didn't know how to do the hooks I didn't have the hooks the book is a single protagonist start to finish her story and it just kind of like we were trying all kinds of things we were making stuff up and we were getting further away from the book and then I had this meeting one afternoon with Piers Wenger at BBC who's who's in charge there and he said to me Andrea can you write this in 90 minutes 
And I was like, oh my God, yes, please let me do that. And he said, off you go. And from that minute, I think we found it. I think that was, it was kind of one of those moments where you just think, oh, this is it. It should always have been a film. Development takes the time it takes and you make a lot of right choices but you make a lot a lot of wrong choices and that's the whole that's the whole process and i think when we discovered the 90 minutes we were just up and running then yeah no that is very interesting and it also illustrates because you've mentioned other names there you know strip executives and producers and commissioners and that as as many people who work in television uh, will know who are watching but there'll be other people who don't there is that great big jigsaw and it's great when it works, but a lot of the time, you know, there are various elements that, that don't work. So there's an element of chance there too. And Andrea nicely queued you up, Neil, for something very different. Uh, how many episodes uh, were it was in the series of Guilt? Four. Four. God, to me, it seems longer. <laughs> I it think seems it's longer when you're writing it. So the four, BBC no. hours. I mean that as a compliment. Long. Because, long. Yeah, um, my Go on, sorry. No, no, there's a wee bit of a delay, so I'll try not to speak over you. But um, I, I meant that as a compliment because it's one of those series, clearly, that made such an impact on so many people. I'm a fan, and I know that there's, there's so many fans around the country. It was a big hit. But it's one of those series that just sort of grabbed you by the neck, and we entered it. We entered that world that you created. And in that way, I felt as if I was in that universe for, for a lot longer than that limited number of episodes. So just give us a little insight, Neil, into the creation of Guilt. I think it was about five years from when I wrote my first sort of page of notes to getting it on the screen. I, I kind of, uh, I, I, I was playing with the sibling relationship. I wanted to do something driven by a sibling relationship. I find it the most interesting, dramatic relationship for me. I think it's, um, when you have siblings, you can have two very different people. They have two very different lives. But when they're brought together, they're brought together with this immediate history they were reduced to children um, and they got this connection they can never get away from, but they can be very different and, and they don't have to spend all their time together. They're not going home every night. They're not going to take the argument home or, or wake up with the argument. And I, I find that quite interesting, quite liberating in terms of opening up a domestic relationship driven show. So it was really looking at sibling relationship and then putting them into, under pressure um, right from the start. And I just thought of the, the opening scene um, the, of them hitting the guy in the car, that, that was it really. I thought the opening scene and, and I, I wrote it out from there. I worked with Neil Webster, uh, producer and, and script editor for, for years really on it, just getting that, that tone right. And then Kirsty McDonald came on, it was fantastic as well. And we just, I'll tell you, it's funny when you're saying about the pace of it, I, I, I'd written the first two episodes and the BBC, it was going to be a six. The BBC said, if you could do it in four, we could make it. And I said, that's absolutely no problem. And I just <laughs> took the, the story and put it into four. So people said, oh, it's brilliant how you quicken the pace and that in three and four. And it was just because I jammed in, <laughs> jammed in for <laughs> it. It worked out really well, I think, in terms of pace and, and structure. So it was, um, as always, these things, years of years of just trying to get to that next stage of development next and it was my first drama I'd, I'd written Eric Kearney and me but it's my first drama series and you know just getting to that next stage getting to that next stage and then thankfully got into production yeah presumably though you'd learned a lot about structure through originally working in radio and creating episodic uh comedy yeah. drama on radio yeah and I, I think just um you know I, I, I think with the BBCR, what I do is I, I do give it a quite a strict act structure on my scripts because I think you almost have to put in imaginary act breaks 
when you write the BBC art, certainly if you write the kind of shows I do, just to give it that little kick and that little that little moment and shift. So um, I kind of artificially put that that on a on a BBC hour script. Yeah, and Paul Lafferty here. We're talking about your film. Sorry, we missed you. Um, which I, I don't know if you guys have kind of described it that or other people have almost like a companion piece to I, Daniel Blake. Uh, I don't know, what, what, what's your take on that? Well, Janice, I'm, I'm, re I'm really sorry here. Um, you, you totally broke up. I could probably oh, try right. and imagine it and answer. Your internet connection is unstable <laughs> and me too. Um, can you hear me okay? Uh, I can hear you loud I mean, the internet connection seems to be terrible, so I'm really sorry I missed your question. That's okay. You want me to pass it on? Can you hear me, Paul? Yes, I, I can, uh, yes. Janice said about your film being a companion piece to I, Daniel Blake. Is that a fair oh, Okay, and the, the, in case I don't get a chance uh, later on, I'd just love to say how it's lovely to talk to other, to other writers. Um, you seldom get the chance, and I really wish I was asking you questions all night instead of having to, to answer them. And, <laughs> um, and I really enjoyed both pieces. Of, very, very different, but I thought they were quite brilliant and very, very much enjoyed. There's great quirky characters as yours, Neil, really kept you gripped and and um, Andrea found yours very, very poignant and deeply moving too. And um, I find that uh, my own mother suffered from dementia towards the end of her life too. So I think that's why it was tapped in. It felt very, very truthful. So a big congrats and it was a, a real joy to watch your work. Um, yes, that, that, sorry we missed you. We had such a good time in, um, in Newcastle, Janice. And we just thought there were just so many other things we would, we would like to look at. You know, Daniel Blake was a kind of, he was a very solitary man. He was living by himself, his partner was gone, but we just wondered if who was along the road. And we imagined a family, the Turner family. And then um, I really wanted it to be about a family and have a sense of what was going on in our world just now. I mean, the change is rampant. Um, the gig economy is coming. It's incredible how technology has affected our lives. Um, there's, and, and I suppose the underneath what I'm always fascinated by is how power operates in our lives. And, um, and just by taking the story of a, a delivery driver with his scanner attached to an app, you were able, you, I was kind of stunned by the complexity of, of that world. It was very fragmented. Uh, there was a lot of bogus self-employment, you know, people who were deemed to be self-employed you know, but had every single working moment of their life controlled by an app and a, and a scanner. And it reminded me of William Blake's great phrase, you know, um, mind forged manacles, um, just in a way how we can swallow the propaganda and uh, of, you know, efficiency and the entrepreneur and the warrior of the road. So there was kind of, we just felt there was a great richness there in that side of the story. And, and also with, with the carer, it's a thing that touches many people's lives. You know, the people who, the people who look after our loved ones. And, but when you actually spend time with them and see the detail of their day, you know, 15 minute visits, zero hour contracts, painful road bus journeys, the stress they were under. And, uh, and we really just wondered how all of this would unfold now in the story of one family. You know, I, I mean, I've got teenage kids and you need to be around them. And what happens if you're not around them? You know, um, what, what, what are we doing? Why are we making people work in 12-hour shifts? I just talked to a guy just outside our door, just uh, just not long after the applause finished, you know, in COVID there. And he was a driver, self-employed. Worked, he worked a 14 and a half hour shift. 14 and a half hours. I mean, in 18, in 18, in 18, in 1820, Robert Owen 
called for an eight-hour day, eight hours rest, eight hours sleep. And here we are 200 years later with this. So um, we just thought there was great richness in this and we just tried to tell a little story. But I'm fascinated by listening to, to Andrea and Neil about how you, how you judge the, the length of a story, how many characters you have. And obviously, it very much depends on the piece. And, you know, I was worked out about one hour, 40 minutes. But you felt that there was so much richness un under there. So to stay on story and to choose the important parts is, is a, a really key decision. And if, if you get that wrong, I think you go around in circles. At least yeah. I do it. I'm sure many people, Paul, will be struck by what you're talking about and me memories of, you know, watching the film first time around. And mm. now, you know, and over the past few months, because of COVID, so many of those situations, particularly carers, absolutely mm. highlighted. And I think mm. it'll be very interesting to see what happens post-COVID, you know, after well, the pause is over, you know, real, yeah. real new structures and proper payment for people. Well, it's a really, really good, good point, Janice, and I, I don't want to go too on long here, but, you know, instead of applause, I think banning zero-hour contracts would, would be absolutely critical. Banning bonus self, uh, self bogus self-employment where this all risk is transferred to the drivers. That would really affect people's lives. It'd really affect their mental health and, uh, and to give people the living wage and to encourage people to enjoy their trade union, not like Jeff Bezos model, where they actually hire psychologists in the States to persuade people not to join trade unions. So, I mean, I think, I mean, talking of which, I mean, he's, he's made 74 billion, you know, since COVID started, just personally. So there's that kind of level of wealth and power um, is, is really remarkable to see unfold during these times. So I think we need to have a, a wealth tax, I think. That would be a good start, wouldn't it? Without putting too much of a downer on things, I was having a conversation uh, about your film because uh, a friend of ours died this week at the age of 55. We're not sure what the cause of death was. We think it's probably a heart attack. He's a long distance lorry driver. And those who knew him were just talking about this, about, you know, we're, we're wondering, but I massively, he had a massive amount of pressure on him the whole time to meet deadlines and to go faster and to get, you know, all of that stuff. So it's a, yeah, it's a horrendous world. And we, we, need, we need films uh, like, like yours. And at the same time also, and it is lovely to get writers together. I wasn't being arch when I said, you know, you guys are so important and you're not in the spotlight enough. And it's fascinating to kind of uh, tap into to what you do and how, how you do it. Um, Andrea, back, back to you. Um, we have to ask you about the casting. I mean, it was wonderful to see Glenda Jackson. I'm lucky enough to be old enough to have seen Glenda Jackson on stage at the Citizens Theatre and Mother Courage and other plays and then go and interview her when she was still in the House of Commons and she was just, I was slightly nervous about going to interview the great Glenda Jackson and she was just a, a, a lovely, lovely woman and, and just very generous with her time. Tell us a little bit about the casting of Glenda Jackson. Well, we, um, to be honest, we, we sort of, we, we, we met Ashling Walsh who directed the film and she did this amazing interview. I mean, she was the only, the only director we saw and she was absolutely perfect for it. She came in and she just said the most brilliant thing. She totally got it. And at the end of it, Sarah and I and Chrissy, the producer said to her, well, who, who can you see in your head for Maud? And she said, Glenda Jackson. And we were like, cause it had not occurred to us, you know, not because we don't think she's brilliant, but because we just didn't think about Glenda because she was in America, she was doing King Lear and it just sort of didn't occur. And the minute Ashling said it, we were just like, well, there's nobody else. 
And so we sent her the script and luckily she was interested. She was on Broadway. She was playing Lear. She's 83 years old, playing Lear on Broadway. And Ashling, she, she came back. We sent her the script. I think we sent her the book. She came back and said, yes, she was interested. So Ashling flew to Manhattan to talk to her. And she took her a package, like a package of all the things that we wanted her to see, you know, to try and persuade her. I think she spent like, she te- she was texting from the, the foyer of Glenda's apartment in Manhattan and saying, well, I'm just about to go in. And we were like, oh God, good luck, good luck. Um, and she she came out and literally, I think we got a call like the next day to say she wanted to do it. So it's that is down to Ashling absolutely having the genius idea of, of getting her to come along and to come on board. And I will never forget the read-through because, you know what read-throughs, I'm not in any way denigrating actors, I love actors, but sometimes at read-throughs, TV read-throughs, they sort of, they don't tell you really, they don't give exactly what they're going to do. Some of it gets held back and it's it's what have you, you know, because that's it's all about the process and everybody has an individual process and sometimes it can be a bit mumbly and you're trying to hear, it's, it, it can be, you know. Anyway, Glenda hadn't done any TV for 20, 20 odd years. And she came into our read through and she sat down. She put her cigarettes and our lighter beside her script, 83. And she just started to act. I mean, from the minute she opened her mouth, we were like, and you saw everybody go, oh my God. It was, it was, I will never forget it as long as I live. It was an astonishing mm-hmm. moment. And she was amazing and the and afterwards we were all talking and chatting and what have you I mean she was amazing and afterwards she kept calling it the play and I was so chuffed I was like oh god it's a play (laughs) and that felt to me like it was like I'd been elevated into something I mean you know obviously not because screenwriters are amazing but it, it she kept calling it the play and she was she was on it from the first minute she read it until Every day, she only had three days off in the whole shoot because she's in every she's in practically everything you know every single scene because it's all from her point of view. So the yeah, she was astonishing. She knew all her she she was yeah. I can't go on about her enough because she's magnificent. It was all filmed in Scotland, Andrea. I recognise Knightswood because that's where yeah, I was born. It was. We had our production office in. Um, Oh, I can't remember, but it was, I think, I think, I think it was where you were, Neil. I think it was where Gilt was. I think we came in after you. Park House. Yes, that place. So I think there was a, there was a load of Scottish productions. Amazing to have so many brilliant productions in Scotland. And they were all going into that wee production office one after the other, like a, like on a belt. So that was really great. Yeah. Uh, And Neil, just tell us a little bit about casting for you, because uh, Jamie Sivis and Mark Bonner, uh, un- it, they seem unlikely in so many ways, but you just talked about siblings and how, how different they, could, they can be, but it's clearly inspired casting. T- tell us about that. Well, I'd, I'd worked with Mark and Eric Ernie and me, he played Eric Morkin, and um, I'd started writing Gil, I think I'd written maybe the first episode, and I said to him, I've got this other thing, it's not been commissioned to production yet, but have a look, have a look at it, and he and he read it and he was very keen and I was obviously delighted with his, you know, he just felt great for the elder brother. And he said, have you thought about the younger brother? And I, I was desperate for the brothers in particular and the wider cast, frankly, to try and be from the East Coast of Scotland. And I didn't know many 
actors from Edinburgh that fitted into that rough age group. But I knew Jamie, I'd met him socially once. And uh, I said, well, what do you think about Jamie Sivis? And he said, well, first of all, that's who I was going to say. Secondly, we were at primary school together. Wow. Um, so it's, you know, it was just brilliant from there. They were at primary school in, in Leith, you know, where the show's set. So you can't buy that kind of chemistry. It was just right from the start, they were joking and telling stories and, and everything else. And I remember they, they hadn't seen each other for a few years and they turned up quite early on. I said, can we do a quick day where it's just you two? And I can just hear some of the longer scenes and hear the voices and things. So they turned up and Mark came in and they were both wearing quite, they'd just both ripped. Mark had just been in the gym for about a month in the build up to this meeting. Because he knew Jamie would be really ripped and it was just great. It was great to see that awkwardness and that competitiveness between them. It felt very sibling-ish and I thought this is, uh, this is probably going to work. <laughs> so brilliant. Yeah, and I'm very lucky they were available as well, you know, because they're so, both such great actors. We can see in, in our Zoom setup that, that there was a competitive thing with you and Paul because we can see how ripped the pair of you are. So, <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you for that one from the gym before this, this session. Uh, Paul, um, casting obviously is so important, particularly that, well, in any, in any film or television programme, but we imagine the dynamic of a Ken Loach film and this tight working unit. Um, is it all hands on deck when it comes to, to casting? Or does that, is there a separate casting director? Or is it more yeah. collaborative than that? Oh, no, we have, we have a wonderful casting director, Callie Crawford. Uh, she's been with us for a long, long time. And, uh, she's absolutely magnificent. Um, she's got a great eye and uh, it's a real pleasure to work with us. So um, so Ken and Callie see lots and lots and lots of people. Sometimes in the research and digging around, I've come across people too, like, for example, Paul Brannigan and, you know, Angel, Angel Sher. We were very lucky to find Paul. And he came in afterwards and did lots of, you know, just, you know, little scenes to see to see how, how they work. But um, so we worked... We work under, we work with and uh, under Callie's careful eye, yeah. and um, and then we just see lots and lots of people. Then when we get short lists, and and then um, you know Ken, and Rebecca, our producer, and myself, we come along, and uh, we just sit in and and, and listen, and uh, sometimes I end up playing the antagonist in a, a daft old scene, and um, you know Ken will make use of anybody who's kicking around, and the very good thing about it, I think, is that. Just by seeing people and talking to people, um, it really helps you refine the character and what you're looking for. You know whether someone is funny, whether they listen, just how they are. And um, I found so I found it an absolutely fascinating process. Uh, I've learned so much from it. And um, and and again, what Ken has always said is we just try and find the person and give best you know life and blood to the character as imagined, you know, in, in the screenplay. And then, so it's, I find it endlessly fascinating. And, and when it does work and, and you find someone, you know, and who, who gives great life and energy to the piece, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a real joy to, to see the whole process from the beginning. Yeah, well, that makes me wonder just about how much, you know, you can, <laughs> how, how far into the process, Neil, particularly with you talking about these two actors who it turns out were at primary school together and you're, you're remarking on the, that, that chemistry. So how much did that inform your writing? Um, because you've actually got, you, you, know, you, you know your cast, your central cast. Um, how, how much does that maybe, I don't know, influence a, a turn of phrase or whatever, because these guys are maybe vibing off each other? Yeah, I, I'll quickly say our brilliant casting director, Caroline Stewart, did the rest of the casting with Robbie and Jules. But I, the, the, the brothers, I mean, Mark, 
knowing Mark was very helpful in writing the rest of the show. <clears throat> Not just, just the time I spent with him on the set of Eric Erdy and me and having dinner or having a drink in the evening and having a laugh, you know, picking up on someone's um, at rest mannerisms and uh, uh, voice and humor and outlook. And he's, he's, a, he's a funny man, Mark, and he, 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 he you know, uh, he speaks with a, a great kind of precision and things. And, and, and just, he, you know, I knew his accent and from that, that really helped massively. Um, but I think it's when you, when you've seen them properly, like Paul was saying, when we did, that early read through was massively helpful, seeing the two of them together, the dynamic between them. And then it's, it's not even so much their voices, it's taking a dynamic into a relationship like that for the rest of the writing is, is fantastic. That was very helpful. Yeah. And uh, just back to you, Andrea, about you know, working with uh, Glenda Jackson. And that was, a, it was a, it, it, it wasn't a straight, straight, I can't imagine it being a straightforward adaptation for you. I'm just wondering how much thinking time there was about how you were going to approach this because apart from anything else there are two timelines there are flashbacks and so on and there's also that central idea which is fine if you're in, the, in, the, in a novel where there's a, an unreliable narrator um, but because of you're dealing with the, the very serious subject of dementia there's a whole question of how you portray that um, they're all I can imagine there are all sorts of challenges for you as a writer so was there a hell of a lot of um thinking from you in advance about how you were going to do this? I think, yeah, I mean, the bulk of the first couple of years of development were taken up with, yeah, with battering the script around. And I think that one of the decisions I made quite early on was that I didn't want to do a voiceover because if you read the novel, she it's totally from her point of view. Um, so you have, a, you have a woman who has dementia, who is narrating her own story, if you like, and she's completely unreliable because of the illness. You don't know whether she's telling the truth. You don't know. And she can't remember what she's just told you. I mean, it's beautifully written, you know, from that point of view. But I made the decision quite early on that I wasn't going to use a voiceover. And I did that because there was a certain something in the novel, because you're the, you're playing the novel in your head, you know, the relationship with the reader to the book is one to one. There was something about the internal voice that I felt I, I didn't feel I could do it justice with a voiceover because dementia isn't like being locked in. It's not the same as if, you know, you, you've seen films where people who are locked in are given voiceovers to express their inner thought. Dementia is not like that. You're not locked in. What, what you are is you are in a, you're in a loop. You're in a kind of constant loop. You can't remember. You don't know what you've done. You can't, have you done it? Have you not? And it, it, but it's not locked in. You're, you're outside, you're externalized. So because my dad, because I had the experience of my dad, I knew that I used to go and visit my dad in the care home when he finally went into the care home. And he would imagine because he traveled a lot and he's, you know, throughout his life, he would imagine he was in South Africa. And he would be in South Africa. So I would be in South Africa with him while we were having a conversation. And the next minute, he would be in Scotland. So I'd have to be in Scotland with him. And I realized that my dad was operating on two different time levels, two different in two different timelines, if you like, simultaneously. And I think that was a massive epiphany with for me when I realized that actually I could put Maud, unreliable Maud, inside her own memories because she was experiencing them as they happened. So that's how the, 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 the sort of the way that the timeline, the two merging of the two times 
kind of it was kind of like an epiphany when I realized I could do that that she could witness her own past because she was inside it so that was a real I, I think I think we all cheered on that particular day when I found that kind of particular thing to do because up until that point I'd be like how am I going to do this so that was a bit of a a bit of an epiphany really and the because she was unreliable and we were trying to unravel a mystery, mm-hmm. I couldn't tell the audience what the mystery really was. So we had to hold the t- we had to we had to play really hard with holding back the information and where the revelations came because obviously we couldn't give everything away. Now the truth is, Helen, her daughter, had been telling her constantly and constantly and constantly that no spoilers, but that Elizabeth was not missing. And where Elizabeth was, but obviously we couldn't show the audience that because then there would be no drama. So we had to be. It was really helpful that she was unreliable and that she was forgetful because I didn't need to show that because it was all from her point of view. So yeah, if that makes any sense, that sounds really waffly to me. But that is how that is how we did it. That is how yeah, that's how it, it happened in the end. It doesn't sound waffly at all, and you you're reminding me so clearly of the film because at the end of it. Um, I was kind of like, oh, I, I need to watch this again because Andrea's done something really clever here because the idea of a thriller, in a sense, it's the last thing you're expecting. We know there's a mystery at the heart of this. There are many mysteries, actually, but it's so blooming clever, Andrea. So, congratulations for me. Paul Lafferty's clapping as well. Paul, have you had those epiphany moments? Because we know there's a sheer grind that we've discussed uh, of, of any aspect of, of uh, writing for screen or, or in fact doing any job in screen, but as the writer, uh, have there been those moments where something's just, it's all clicked into place? Um, well, unfortunately not enough of them, Janice, to be, to be brutally honest. And, <laughs> uh, but um, just, just to go back to Andrea's point, I mean, I think it was quite brilliant. It was a fantastic idea. And I think people underestimate how difficult it is to um, to adapt a book because it's not, I don't think adaption is, is the right word. I think you have to reinvent it. And and I think you, you spoke about it very, very well. I thought it was a brilliant idea. Um, but I, I suppose you are looking for moments of luck when you feel a script might work. I'll never forget when, I'll never forget when we met Eric Cantona. He came to see us. Um, um, a long time ago, and um, and he wanted to do a story about. Um, can can you hear me? Okay, because I'm we can. certainly oh, yeah, good time. Yeah. Um, it's a bit, a bit like talking to my kids. There's no reaction. You can't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So anyway, Eric Canton, I'll be very quick. He came along to see us, um, and he had he wanted us to tell a story about um, a fan who had followed him from Leeds United, you know, to Manchester United. And, and it was a kind of remarkable story, but I mean, I just had no connection with it. I wasn't particularly interested in it and I couldn't see how it would work. But in that moment, um, I was kind of fascinated by the character of Cantona himself, especially, I don't want to bore everybody who isn't interested in football, but he had a great presence and he was on the pitch. Um, he kind of just filled the place up and he scored this amazing goal. I went to with, with an ex-Celtic player, I think it was up in uh, Sunderland, and after he scored this wonderful goal, which took great imagination and athleticism, he stuck out his chest and he turned round to the audience, to, to the crowd. And it was this kind of immense communication between him and the crowd. And in that moment, I just felt this man has actually just fulfilled 
every single bit of talent he's ever had because it was imagination, it was physical, it was his personality, and he just felt like he was everything he could be. And in that moment, it came to me an idea of what happens if there's a little Eric in the crowd who's watching him, you know, who is having panic attacks, who's invisible to his children, who hasn't sorted out his past. And uh, so he's almost the mirror image op opposite. And I, I just had this idea, well, how could he communicate with Big Eric and maybe take spliffs and moments of crisis and maybe we could form a connection between them. And um, anyway, so yeah, that just, I had a terrible flu and this is what popped into my head. Uh -huh. And I had to go and see Big Eric in, in Paris. And um, I talked to Ken about it and Ken was up for it and he thought it'd be a lot of mischief. And I remember talking to Big Eric and I said, Eric, would you mind if we change the story a little bit? Actually, it's about an old guy um, who hasn't sorted out his family. You know, he has too many spliffs. He's a moment of crisis. He has panic attacks. Uh, and you are the kind of like counsellor to him. And we might have some mischief with this. And he just burst out laughing. And he says, yeah, I'm up for that. And uh, so that was a kind of <laughs> one, of the, one of the few epiphany moments when I felt like, well, we'll have some fun with this. And, uh, and, uh, and then afterwards, we sort of made looking for Eric. I love the way you describe me as Big Eric all the time. I must say, I don't know if you saw him in Inhuman Resources, uh, which is on one of the streaming services, uh, playing a man having a kind of a breakdown and going to extreme measures. I, I recommend it if it's still available. Uh, incredible acting by Eric Cantona. I love that film so much. I love it. Yeah. Um, Neil, I have to ask you, talking about having fun, um, I think what people relished was, it was something I don't think we'd really seen before, that kind of incredibly confident, adept take on black comedy. Um, and I wonder, um, we're obviously, we have a glut of drama through streaming services now. So I guess expectations are raised. You know, we're, we're just, we just expect to sit down and watch something potentially award-winning every other night of the week. Um, were you influenced by any, you know, any other, particular series or writers or films? Television-wise, probably a lot of American shows, really. It's an awful word, but that sort of dramedy tradition they have over there, I think it's more established than here, um, where the writers are sort of almost permitted to involve humour in their in their kind of dramatic execution. So shows like Fargo and Better Call Saul and the Sopranos, which is a very funny show <clears throat> on occasion. But then film, probably, so, probably more films here, Shallow Grave, Trainspotting, both Trainspottings, I love the sequel to Trainspotting, and that kind of some more Scottish aspect to it. But I think for me, it's about, the show's dramatically driven in terms of story and structure. Everything happens for dramatic reasons, <coughs> stemming from the characters. They don't happen for comedic reasons. You're never setting something up because you think it'll be funny. <coughs> but then it's about allowing the characters to sometimes react with humour to the pressured situations they're in, you know, and I think that's very real. And uh, I find it very odd when I watch a six-hour drama when no one says anything remotely funny, because I think it's one of the main ways that human beings react to pressure, you know, gallows humour and everything else. So I think, you know, you use it. The biggest thing we do when I write the show, and with particularly Neil Webster when he's editing them, is we, we absolutely analyse anything that is remotely comedic and is this justified it's always the funny stuff that goes out draft to draft until you end up with stuff that's just completely justified and you believe it and you believe that is how that character would react to that situation in that moment you know 
And uh, I think that's, that's you, you know, as long as you're so sparing with it, then people remember it as having lots of humour in it. And often it doesn't. I think it's unusual in a drama to have two or three of these moments in an hour. And also, I was just going to say to you, Neil, you know, you've all talked about, um, maybe I have uh, wrongly focused too much on the, the central characters, uh, the main stars, we talked about Glenda Jackson. Um, but with, you I thought one of the wonders of guilt was the fact that it became something else. So there's a sort of focus on the two boys, the two brothers, but then you're kind of like, wait a minute, what's going on with those other characters? They're really important as well. Can you just tell us from, from the, the writing point of view about that, about developing that? It was probably the moment when I realized I had four hours to fill, Janice. <laughs> I better get a few other people involved in this. But it was, um, okay, it was just that, <clears throat> I wanted to write something that was really a ripple effect. So for the brothers, it was a ripple effect for this moment. And narratively, it was a ripple effect from that opening sequence in terms of all the people's lives that started to touch in as, as, in as surprising ways as I can imagine, really. Um, and then just really enjoying those other characters and those other lives and thinking about who those people might be and what their backstories might be and, and finding hidden, unforeseen connections between them as well. So. It's so much fun, I'm sure Andrea and Paul would say the same. I mean, often you go into a project and you have a really clear picture of your main character. Uh, and often the fun in the writing is really getting into those around them. Because you're exploring them and you're discovering them as you write. Often you go in with knowing who that central character is, but you discover the others through the show. And that, that's, you know, that's what makes it fun. Yeah, and Paul Laverty, for you, it was Chris Hitchin as, as Ricky. Uh, so he is our central character, you know, he's like the, the heart of the film, but as you already said, something quite different from I, Daniel Blake, because he is at the centre of a family, and indeed that's part of the, the tension uh, that we feel on his behalf of trying to keep everything together, uh, as through no fault of his own economically, uh, in, in other ways life is, is crumbling for him. Again, can you give us a little insight into just, you know, building out from beyond that central character and the importance of the other characters there? Mm -hmm. And in a way, Janice is so um, Debbie and um, his wife Abby is, is, is an equally important um, actor actor in the film. I know there's been more attention to, to Chris maybe because of the work, but in my mind they were they were both pretty equal really. Um, and we were fortunate to get a wonderful actress, maybe uh, um, Debbie, who who worked in a who who was actually she she was an assistant in a school. So she had done very little, little acting, but she was absolutely a knockout, you know, in the improvisations that we did. Um, she was really, really marvellous. Um, and I, I think Neil's made a very, very good, really important point too, because uh, you, when, when you're facing, you're trying to create a whole world, and in a way you don't know the, all the answers, and half of it's instinct, I think. And I think what really happens is when they do meet other characters, and I think it's in life too, we are different people to different people. And then, so, you know, you're a different person to your partner, to your children, to your best mate. But then it's, you know, you know, it's, it, it ripples out and, it's, and you see different aspects of the character. So sometimes in a way, I think you've, you've got to be ambushed by the character and, uh, and through interaction with these other characters, um, you, you get a sense of who they were. And I think Neil did that beautifully in his, in his series. I mean, I loved, I loved, I loved, I love some of the, 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 the I don't, I don't think it doesn't do them justice to call them secondary characters. The old neighbor was wonderful. You know, the sleuth was wonderful. You know, they became characters themselves. And I, and I think maybe they have less space. Um, but somehow I think 
if the writing is good, you get a sense of the iceberg underneath. And I, th I thought you did that really, really well. I think that's the thing. I mean, we're talking about three very different pieces, but yeah. all of them, you know, it's a, extremely accomplished. You know, you're taking them down a certain path with all of them, and then there are there are new revelations all the time. I'm going to turn to questions that have come in. Um, so let's see. So the first one, uh, Anka Badita, when doing research, how do you know when you've done enough? And do you start the story from an interest in a subject and then the story emerges out of the research? Or do you have an outline of the story and do research to add detail to the story that will feel true to life? So who would like to pick up on that? Paul or Andrea would be better suited to that. I do. Yeah, I do. I mean, I probably, I, I usually, I, my, most of my work recently has been with books, I have to say. So I'm given a story. I have a story that is there in the book and it's up to me, I think, my responsibility to read, to read between the lines and to make sure that I, I immerse myself in that story and in that particular story world. So for example, Elizabeth is Missing is about dementia. So I did as much research as I could based on that, plus with my own experience to try and work out exactly what I thought was going on inside her head and why. Um, with, we would, I would work very closely with Claire I did with Elizabeth and we would break the book down and so we would there would be an outline we would break the book down we would look at the the really important iconic moments in the book that I felt could not could not be missed or that Claire felt were really important and those would became like pegs and then we would look at how what was needed for the story to turn it from a a novel into a screen story what what did we else did we need to dramatize so that would then come into play so you're padding it out and padding it out and padding it out until you've got this kind of this kind of um jigsaw that you've put together and it's sort of is beginning to make sense so yes if that if that answers it um, that's great thank you and paul clearly i mean you, you talked earlier on about working in Newcastle and wanted to do more there. Clearly there's a lot of research goes in to, to your work with Ken Lodge. Yes, I, I think Janice had just a lot of, um, I think I think listening is greatly underestimated, you know, both for writers and for life, really. Um, you know, trying to put ourselves in someone else's shoes. Now, you can't copy a screenplay from the street. You just can't do that. But I mean, for example, when we did I, Daniel Blake, I mean, the welfare system was just so enormous and so complex and there's so many options and there's so much misinformation, there's so much propaganda that actually you've got to kind of dive down underneath to try and figure out what's going on. And um, so we spent a lot of time, uh, I mean, both Ken and myself, we went and visited a lot of, um, you know, food banks and you just listen to people's stories of their lives. You listen to the lived experience of, um, of, of people who, you know, who, who are going through crisis um, and but, but you've got to try and figure out how the system operates so you have to do some I mean the type of you know we're not just making it up but what would give it resonance and make it powerful and make it a critique was if it was truthful so finding whistleblowers was really really important and after we spoke to some really remarkable whistleblowers who are very insightful who give us great information we knew the government was lying it wasn't just like you know, we could, we could accuse them of being, um, you know, intolerant or cruel. We knew they were liars as well because we had the information. 
we had you know, we saw documents signed by area managers in the in the in, in within the welfare system and how they're operating and how they were forcing people and putting them under pressure to sanction people, which of course meant meaning that they wouldn't have food for a month. There was there's more rights for people with their with their parking tickets. So in a way, doing all that kind of gives you great information, but also kind of helps you figure out what the story is about. And then at the end of that process, trying to figure things out, understanding it, you throw it all away, and then you have to come up with fictional characters. And then with such a complex world, you have to simplify. So in a way, you know, the talking to everyone gives you a sense of what's going on. That journalistic work to understand the detail. And then a way you just have to forget it. You know, and then try and simplify, and then you hope characters will give flesh and blood to that. And um, so every film is very, very different, but that, that's how it happened in, you know, in, in Daniel Blake. Mm. And I imagine with the more you do it and with the years of experience, uh, I'm not suggesting it gets easier, but mm. it must it must be a little bit easier as you continue from starting off maybe as a blank, an utterly blank slate. You know, you know you can do it. Maybe you also know the pitfalls. Well, I mean, it's funny you say that. It's a, a very perceptive question because um, it just feels like a mountain to climb. And sometimes you just feel you'll never find the story. Mm. Um, and I suppose it's all to do with human beings being, you know, frightened and scared. And will, will, will they find it? Will it be a failure? Will you totally screw up? So um, you, 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 the very fact that you things that might have worked in the past doesn't guarantee the next one will work. I think you have to just try as hard and try and figure it out. And sometimes you you can just make a mistake and get the wrong premise and the wrong characters, and you can waste so much time and effort. And um, so I, I wish I, I wish it was true, <laughs> but it's not. <laughs> now, there are quite, quite a few questions coming in, so let's try and do some fairly uh, swift answers just to try and, and uh, answer folk. Um, how do you navigate development and potentially working on different projects over an extended period of time? Neil, do you want to tell us about that? You just you kind of have to do it. You've just got to juggle multiple projects because you, you never ever know which one's going to make it through to production. Often it's the least surprising one. <clears throat> the one that you think is a banker will have a Devon lock at the final fence or something. So you've just got to you've got to juggle. It's, it'd be lovely to be monomaniacal and spend a year on a project, but I think it, the only way you really get that opportunity is if you get a longer series commission, perhaps, and sort of clear a year. But I, I kind of try to embrace it and, and, and enjoy going from project to project and trying to keep things in the air. Thanks. And Andrea, for you, obviously, you have juggled various projects and you're low and short term. I'm wondering sometimes, is it the same principle for you guys as it is for many others of us? But actually, sometimes juggling and doing that and you might think this is not the best circumstances but sometimes that can maybe lead to your best work than if you had some kind of I'm going to sit around for a year and figure out what I'm doing scenario. Yeah I've found on occasion that I've been doing one particular script and it's unlocked something in another script that I haven't even been trying to find the answer to but suddenly I'll go oh my god that's how I need to do that even though I'm a so I think if you're open to just the process of the creation, sometimes it can help you with things that you're trying to do. And for me, I, I'm a frustrated turn. I love, I'm an actor really at a heart. And so I really love to get inside all the, I mean, I, I speak my characters out loud. I, I am every character. I act them out to myself and kind of, so I love the fact that I can slip between different 
projects and into different things. I mean, I wrote an episode of Sanditon last year and I was bobbing about in a bonnet. Do you know what I mean? It's like, you just, you you have to immerse yourself in the world, I think. And I think that is one of the joys of being a writer is that you're given the opportunity to to live these different lives that you wouldn't, you wouldn't necessarily have the chance to do. So I think we're all pretty lucky um but totally agree with neil that you cannot just do one thing because you couldn't live you couldn't live on that money apart from anything else you know it's a career after all uh, uh scott daniels what would the panel recommend we unknown unrepresented writers do to try to break in any top tips paul lafferty oh gosh um well um it's I, th I think it's, it's very, very difficult for people, but um, I think you have to have that obsessive spirit, really. You've just got to write. Um, and I think it's, I mean, people get so many knocks, but at the same time, what I think is very, very important to remember is that everybody's looking for a good story. And it strikes me talking to the few other writers I know, not that I know very many, just that there's, there are so many possibilities now with, with the streaming and, and, and new options opening up. And people are hungry to get new stories so um i mean i would say have faith and have a crack at it i mean i mean i came back from nicaragua after working for three years in central america many many years ago and i told some people i'm going to write a script and they all laughed their heads off they said you must be mad you must be daft and i must have written to about you know i wrote to hundreds of people absolutely hundreds but i was determined to try and get this, this story made and eventually i had then when i won the lottery ticket i had the great fortune to meet up with with Ken Loach and 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 he was open and curious, and um, so uh, stick at it and uh, be very determined. Be your own toughest critic and be make sure that what you send out is is really worked on. You know, it's not kind of you know secondhand. It's you know uh, that you've really thought about it and um, and you you care about it and just make it as best you can, no matter what genre it is. Um, and uh, and like I say, I think good good writing and good ideas will, will, will shine through. So have faith, and I hope you have a bit of luck. I think also at the moment, particularly, you know, we've seen through this terrible crisis that we've all lived through that content is everything. You know, we've been so needy of content, watching telly and watching streamers and doing all of that. And I think it behoves producers and commissioners to find stories to put on the screen. And actually they want stories. It, it's not that they, they want to find them. And in Scotland at the moment, I think we've, we've got a lot of production companies particularly who are very open to hearing new voices and to, you know, so send your, you know, find out, do your research, find out who these companies are, find out who, who is reading the scripts and find the ones that you think might, you know, look at their body of work and think they, they might like my voice, my story and, and be brave enough to, to knock on their doors. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, let's have a, see if we can do two more questions uh, and answer very quickly. Um, Neil, uh, oh, do you have a regular writing routine and what is it? I, I write mostly in the morning. I try and get up and write as quickly as I can and, and as for as long as I can. Um, I feel that I can feel the clock ticking even as I start writing. And uh, I, I love that feeling of getting a good couple of hours and straight off the bat. And I feel that, that I just relax then. I'll go back to it in a relaxed state. Um, so, you know, I think know the time of day that you're, you're best at writing and protect that time of day like your life depends on it. 
Thank you. Uh, Paul Lafferty, how do black and brown writers break through the barriers that even white working class people have challenges to break into? That's a big question. I've missed the beginning of that, sorry, cracked up again. This is from Toby Yazin saying, how do black and brown writers break through the barriers that even white working class people have challenges to break into? Well, it's a, it's a, it's a very, very good question. Um, and uh, I think you've touched on something really, really important here. And then maybe with, since Black Lives Matter you know, has come about, I think it's opened the lid in so much discrimination, uh, so much abuse. And, you know, so um, I, th I, think, I think it's very tough. But I, would, I, th I think what, um, what Andrea said earlier on was very, very good. This, you know, to, it's maybe to, it's to find out, you know, and do your research, imagine who might be interested in, 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 in your project and, and, and your experience, because, you know, they certainly will have a different story to tell, different experience, uh, and you will know that inside out. Um, it deserves, and uh, it deserves, you know, it, it, it deserves fairness now, and there's been so much, um, so much prejudice um, against minority writers. So um, I think it's harder, but but I think probably now there's, there's maybe a, a, bit, a bigger appetite and, and, and more interest and more curiosity. Certainly when I talk to you know, the, the youngsters that I know through my, through, through my children and through my nieces and nephews. I mean, I think they do have a hunger to hear about different experiences, you know, in different cultures, different languages, different, different positions in the world. So um, I, I think, again, it's finding out who those good production companies are who want new voices and, and, and will take risks. And, uh, and good luck to you. It's really, really important. Thank you for that question and for that answer. That The hour has gone. We're going to have to leave it there. I can't believe it. Thank you so, so much. Paul Lafferty, uh, Andrea, thank you very much. And Neil as well. Uh, terrific uh, questions. It's lovely to have a wee look at where you live as well. There's that this factor is a joy too, to see where these esteemed writers uh, work. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, thank you, Janice. Thank you. Thank you, Janice. Thank you. Cheerio. Bye-bye. A uh, huge thanks to our uh, speakers and again, big congratulations on the nominations. And uh, just a thank you from me to our supporting partner of the session, Screen Scotland. Uh, we do hope you've enjoyed the discussion and do, as I say, join in the, the conversation on BAFTA's social channel. Stay tuned for details on where to watch the British Academy Scotland Awards. BAFTA host uh, will, um, yeah, and uh, that's it. Yeah, I think that's it. Bye-bye, everybody. Thank you very much. Bye.